all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Karen Brown with Dr. Michelle Owens, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC. Ovarian cancer is our topic today, and joining us is Lori Newcomb, who knows a little something about ovarian cancer. She has it and can offer her personal perspective. You're invited to ask questions, make comments, share your own stories with us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women, and we'll be right back after news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. House has just approved a bipartisan bill to allow families of victims of the September 11th terror attacks to sue Saudi Arabia's government. The bill now heads to the White House, where President Obama is expected to veto it. Here's NPR's Susan Davis. Congress approved the legislation by voice vote, despite opposition from President Obama and Saudi Arabia, a top U.S. ally in the Middle East. The bill gives victims' families the right to sue for damages in U.S. courts for any role the Saudi government may have played in the 2001 attacks. Fifteen of the 19 hijackers were Saudi nationals. However, the Saudi government has never been directly implicated. The administration has expressed concerns that it would expose Americans overseas to legal risks. They argue that if U.S. citizens can sue the Saudis, then other foreign countries could in turn sue the U.S. Lawmakers do not share those concerns. The bill sailed through the Senate in May. The vote comes just days before the 15th anniversary of the attacks. Susan Davis, NPR News, the Capitol. In a declaration of unity, members of Congress gathered today on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and sang God Bless America, just as Congress did 15 years ago after the 9-11 attacks. House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi was among the Democrats to stand together with Republicans today to pay tribute to the nearly 3,000 people killed, the loved ones mourning them, and the first responders still struggling with health problems. As we salute all of those who died on 9-11, we must also salute those who have lost their lives in the years since. We must remember the ongoing struggles of the thousands of heroes who years later are stalked by devastating illnesses from their exposure to ground zero. North Korea is announcing a higher-level nuclear test explosion that it says will enable its forces to build lighter yet stronger nuclear weapons. This is Pyongyang's fifth atomic test and one drawing dire warnings from countries around the world. President Obama says the U.S. will not allow North Korea to become a nuclear state, and the North's Asian neighbors are raising the alarm over regional security. A federal judge is expected to decide today whether work must stop on part of the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline. Protesters rallied against the project in several cities this week in support of an ongoing protest in North Dakota. 
From Prairie Public Broadcasting, Amy Sisk has the latest. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has asked for an injunction to stop construction on the pipeline slated to run from North Dakota to Illinois. It's suing the Army Corps of Engineers. The agency has jurisdiction over the pipeline's waterway crossings, including at the Missouri River next to the reservation. The North Dakota governor placed the National Guard on standby in anticipation of the judge's decision. The protest here grew violent last weekend as protesters clashed with security hired by the pipeline developer. The tribe has called for peace ahead of the ruling. For NPR News, I'm Amy Sisk in Bismarck. The Dow is down more than 200 points. This is NPR. NATO Secretary General says the alliance welcomes Turkey's military operation in northern Syria against ISIS. NPR's Peter Kenyon says it's the first visit by the NATO head since July when President Recep Tayyip Erdogan survived a military coup. NATO's Jens Stoltenberg says Turkey has a right to defend itself, telling a Turkish broadcaster that a number of deadly terrorist attacks against Turkish citizens originated on the Syrian side of the border. Turkish officials say the ongoing operation to clear ISIS from the border area shows that Turkey's military remains strong despite the coup attempt. NPR's Peter Kenyon. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry's in Geneva attempting to convince Russia to play a bigger role in ending the Syrian conflict. The editor of Norway's largest newspaper is accusing Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg of abusing his editorial power after Facebook deleted an iconic Vietnam War photo. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London. Facebook's role as a major platform for publishing news is attracting scrutiny and criticism. Espenegel Hansen, the editor of Oftenposten, said Facebook deleted the famous photo of nine-year old Kim Fook as she ran naked down a road after Napalm had burned her clothes off. The photo was part of an often posted story on images that changed the history of warfare. In a front page letter to Zuckerberg, Hansen said this, I'm upset, disappointed, well, in fact, even afraid of what you're about to do to a mainstay of our democratic society. In response to a query by the Guardian newspaper, Facebook said it knows the photo is iconic, but said it was hard to distinguish between allowing a photo of a nude child in one instance and not another. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include TIAA. Whether it's investing, advice, banking, or retirement, TIAA is dedicated to helping those who teach, heal, and serve others achieve a lifetime of financial well-being. Learn more at TIAA.org. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Good morning, and thank you for being with us on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown, Dr. Michelle Owen, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC is here. We are talking about ovarian cancer today because this is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and we have two special guests who will add much to this discussion. First of all, we say good morning to Lori Newcomb. She uh, knows about ovarian cancer because she has it, and she can offer her personal perspective Our other special guest is Dr. Christy Haygood, who is a GYN oncologist, and she can add perspective and knowledge and expertise. So if you have a question uh, or comment, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. Now, we already have a caller, but caller, I ask that you wait on the line until we can introduce our guests and sort of get the sh- get the ball rolling, so to speak. Dr. Owens, good morning. Good morning. You want to start it off with our guests? Well, I, you already stole all the thunder, saying all the good <laughs> stuff. So we have um, we've been fortunate enough to welcome in September, um, and everybody's coming back off of their great uh, vacation and holiday weekends and getting back into the swing of things. And um, yeah, so we've got two. Um, Two guests, and I'm. This is so highly anticipated because I really, in the interest of full disclosure, wanted to do this last year, um, and we kind of weren't able to make it work with the schedule because I wanted to make sure that we were timely. Um, and it, the reason why this is really important to me is because um, I think it's very important that we have. Um, I guess uh, everybody needs to tackle issues related to health and awareness. And nothing gets me more excited than seeing when community uh, businesses and when there are entities within the community that also take ownership of helping the people who are patrons in their businesses or who visit their establishments to be more educated and informed about issues as they relate to their health. And I think that um, while your story is wonderful, and we're going to get to talk about that in a minute, regardless of what it is that creates this opportunity for the stars to align in such a way that there can be a greater involvement and people involved who can really help to push that message out, that's just, it's, Phenomenal. And so I just want to commend you guys for for doing this and for being here. And like I said, I've been waiting a whole year to do this show. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about, you know, the your story and your walk. And we can talk about this this thing that is ovarian cancer and help give people information and also talk about some other interesting ways that the community can also turn out and be involved um, to get more information and also to do things to drum up support for people who have been affected by this disease or who may have who may be survivors Um, and you know it's kind of interesting because while it's not the most common GYN cancer, it still um, happens way too much. I'm sure Chris will say that. I know it, it kind of keeps the lights on, but unfortunately, we'd love for it to be something else that did that. Um, so anyway, we'll just go ahead and let you guys introduce yourselves. So we'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, good afternoon. I'm Lori Newcomb, and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm representing Nukes Cares, and we are a um, philanthropic arm of Nukes Eatery where we're really trying to 
show women the symptoms and show women an even better way to take care of their bodies and communicate with their doctors about different symptoms that they may have that would relate to ovarian cancer. So before we get into the heady stuff, tell us about you. About me? Yeah. Well, I'm a mom, mom of three. I am married to a great guy who who loves to cook and, and in the restaurant business. <laughs> where are you from? Um, where are you from originally? I'm actually from here. I'm from Jackson, awesome. Mississippi Jackson. and went to Ole Miss. Cool. And um, oh, my gosh, that yeah. game. Oh, oh, my goodness. So sad. Everybody knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, that game. I was very surprised. I thought, did someone change the channel? What happened here? <laughs> Came back at halftime. Yeah. So you went to Ole Miss. Yes. And now you are. Well, now here, just um, being a mom, um, helping, you know, my husband just kind of get through all of his fun things that he's doing. And I am diagnosed with ovarian cancer. When? When were you diagnosed? Okay, so I was diagnosed in 2013 with ovarian cancer stage 3C. And it definitely came as a huge shock to me. No one in my family had ever been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and um, really not even breast cancer. So it was just really one of those things that, that came out of left field for me. And I was, I had no idea what the symptoms were. And it was, um, it was definitely something that, that made me think, you know what, there are other women that are probably just like me that are, have the same symptoms that I do that have no idea what ovarian cancer is. They've never heard of it. So that that's really kind of been my journey for the past three years. It, it doesn't define who I am, but it, it definitely has put me on another path of who Lori Newcomb is, Absolutely. ovarian cancer survivor. I think that's a really good point. Um, and for the listening audience, she said, and we'll delve into this a little bit uh, later, but she said she was diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer. And that refers to the staging or the way that if you talk about grading ovarian cancer, so to speak. And so the more severe, the higher your number and you're graded one through four. The stages um, are the earliest or the lowest form is one and the highest is four. So 3C is a pretty big deal. Um, Not the highest, but still a pretty advanced stage, um, just so that everybody kind of understands what that means. Because many people out there like you probably don't have a whole lot of information if they don't know someone or have not been diagnosed or know someone who's diagnosed may not even know what that means. So thanks for that. Dr. Haygood, we don't want to give you short shrift. We do have phone callers, but I want to hear about you, where you're from and how you got involved in this particular part of medicine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I'm originally from Crystal Springs, um, so just down south. I did college at Mississippi (laughs) College, um, graduated there in 2004, and then did medical school here at the university um, and was very blessed to meet Michelle while um, while I was there. I knew her when she was a baby. As a first year medical student. um, (laughs) I have a great story about that. We'll tell later. Um, Then I left here um, in 2009 to do my all my training down at the University of Alabama um, in Birmingham. Was there for seven years where I finished my fellowship uh, in June. And then I've just moved back to the area in July. Uh, I joined Paul Segoe's practice at St. Dominic's doing GYN oncology. And just I'm thrilled to be here. We have such a need in this state for GYN oncologists. There are only four now in the in entire the whole state. state. 
And so what exactly does your job entail as a GYN oncologist? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of people don't understand the difference between an oncologist or a surgeon. And so as a GYN oncologist, we are trained initially as OBGYNs, and then we spend an additional three years to learn how to do both chemotherapy and surgery for cancers that only affect women. So those cancers of the uterus, tube, cervix, ovaries, vagina, and vulva. Girl part cancer doctors. Exactly. All right. We are going to go to the phone now. We thank uh, we thank Deb for waiting so patiently. Deb is calling in from Tupelo. Hi, go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, we can hear you fine. What's okay. your question? Um, my question is um, that I understand that there is some, um, there have been studies or there seems to be a trend of women who have had hysterectomy, uh, for example, uh, in their 30s, and they did not have their ovaries removed, and 20, 30 years later, um, some of these people are doing that uh, with an eye toward preventing ovarian cancer, and I just wish to uh, hope you can address that for me. Is that a trend? Is that recommended protocol? Does it depend on the person's uh, history, perhaps, with cervical cancer or some other type of cancer that would maybe... um, Hey, great question, Deb. Um, Preventative, a good preventative thing to do, electively, I guess. Yeah, sure. So the question um, really you want to know is, should women have their ovaries removed maybe at the time of hysterectomy or at a later date? Is that is that about right? Well, at a later date if they weren't removed. Yeah, sure. So when they were you're right. And that get off the phone and, and listen to your answer. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Deb. And, you know, we just talked about hysterectomy, and we were talking about whether or not people have their ovaries removed and how some people can have a hysterectomy and still have their ovaries retained and how important it is, depending on the age of the patient, is one of the things that you take into consideration. So since you get to do this a lot, Dr. Haygood, you can fill us in, fill Deb in a little bit more. Happy to. So um, you're right, Deb. There are a lot of different things that we factor in when we consider taking out a woman's ovaries. And probably one of the number one things is the patient's age. And so if they've had a hysterectomy for other indications that may be an age less than 50, we would like to keep those ovaries in because at that point they really do, in the absence of other factors that we'll talk about, um, they really can protect you from different things like cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, So leaving the ovaries in place and having all those natural hormones are actually a good thing, um, usually until over the age of 50. Now, if you're having a hysterectomy over the age of 50, um, we probably would usually recommend that you do have your ovaries out um, at that time because they really, for the most part, don't have that much function. As most women in the U.S. go through menopause at age 52, so after the age of 50, there's little function that the ovaries do. So we would recommend that you have them removed. Now, In some settings where patients have a strong family history or if you have what's called a genetic mutation um, or something that would make you more at risk of having an ovarian cancer, in that case, we would usually recommend that you have your ovaries removed after you're done with childbearing. Um, If you've had a hysterectomy and then are um, 
are still having your ovaries or are then diagnosed with a genetic mutation, we would typically recommend that you would have your ovaries out at that point. But as a general rule for patients who've had their ovaries left in at the time of hysterectomy, we would not recommend that you go back and take them out um, unless you have one of those other things that would predispose you to ovarian cancer. So the concept of, and we, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about, um, talk about this a little bit more too, but um, there are some um, genetic or um, chromosomes, genetic type issues that, um, which is just the information that is contained in our cells that make us who we are. It tells you whether your eyes are going to be blue, where your eyes are going to be brown. It's that genetic information. So there are genetic changes in certain areas on the information that tells us who we are um, inside our cells and that can increase risks for women for GYN cancers, um, specifically breast uh, and ovarian cancer. So when we talk about those genetic mutations or genetic problems that you may be diagnosed with or that we can sometimes test for, um, that's kind of what it's referring to. just want to make sure everybody's all on the same page as we're going forward with the terminologies. We need to take our first break of the hour. Frank, hang on the phone. We're going to get to you when we come back. If you'd like to give us a call, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. have a big decision to make on November 8th. A date which will live in infamy. We will keep this promise to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. Daily at 4 on NPB Think Radio. Coming up on MPB's At Issue. Kemper Controversy. Per megawatt hour, this is the most expensive electric generating facility in the world. Mississippi Power calls it the world's most advanced coal plant. If it were to work, then we might have a viable fix for how to clean up coal plants. But it's billions of dollars over budget and behind schedule. There's certainly no reason to continue to throw good money after bad. We take a closer look at the Kemper County Energy Facility on At Issue. Tonight at 7 on MPB TV. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
We're back. Thanks for listening to Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens and our guest today, Dr. Christy Haygood and Lori uh, Newcomb. We are talking about ovarian cancer today. And first, before we get back to that topic, we're going to take a phone call from Frank calling in from Jackson. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? We're doing great. How are you? Um, pretty good. And let me express my blessing, excuse me, my prayers for anybody who is suffering from any kind of cancer. Um, here's my issue or question. I spent a lot of time at MD Anderson in Houston, and I read a lot of their journals. And it seems that the conclusion is that the incidence of breast cancer in Western and non-Western nations can be pretty much isolated to diet. Uh, there are some environmental issues, but the consensus seems to be that diet is the number one indicator or the number one factor in uh, predicting uh, whether a person will be susceptible to breast cancer and not genes. I mean, we're going overboard, in my opinion, on this gene issue that there are things in your body that you cannot control. So the best thing you can do is, is when you get cancer, go see the mechanic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, basically, as an expert, and I know you can't change the world, you can't change the food supply, and you certainly can't change a patient's diet, but what are the educational institutions who train our medical professionals doing to impart the, the concept that genes play a part, but the number one indicator as evidenced by the incidence of breast cancer in Western and non-Western nations and regions, is diet, sugar, fat, processed food, GMOs, uh, artificial hormones, uh, all okay. Okay. <laughs> That's a, <long laughs> a nice list. <laughs> so, so Frank, you um, you make a very good point. Um, yes, it is true that um, the incidence does vary. And there's probably a lot more um, research and data that investigates um, the dietary differences that exist in non-Western countries compared with um, those of Western or even actually more developed countries. Um, so, so there's a lot of information that's out there. Um, and I don't believe that at this moment the jury is really back in. I don't think that there is a silver bullet diet. Um, ask anybody who's trying to lose five pounds. Um, I don't think that there's a silver bullet diet that any of us can adopt that um, will make sure that we don't get cancer. Um, because as you mentioned, there are some things about us that we can't control. And there are things genetic predispositions, but I do believe that what you said that really rang true for me is that we cannot underestimate or underappreciate the importance of what we take into our bodies and trying to make healthy choices just for overall health. And I think that when you make good, healthy choices and you do limit those things that we know aren't good for us or are not prepared in the best way, that that does have an impact on our overall health and can, in fact, 
alter our susceptibility not only to cancers but to um, communicable diseases, to infections and things of that nature. Um, the other thing is that there uh, there's risk factors that come about as a result of um, poor dietary choices. So, for example, people who struggle with obesity also have higher rates of some chronic illnesses, but also um, obesity can be a risk factor for cancer. So um, you are absolutely right uh, that you cannot continually put garbage in and expect that everything is going to continue running well. Um, So yes to that. But I don't know that there is um, there are other things that you also have to think about in differences between non-Western countries and uh, Western nations. And that also has to do with the other environmental factors and lifestyle differences that are not just reduced to diet alone. So I think that all of those things as a whole are very important and contribute. But I don't think that there's any one thing that you could isolate that you could pull out and say, aha, this is it. This is the silver bullet. And if you do it this way. Way, then you won't have cancer at all because their rates aren't zero. They're just significantly lower than they may be in some of the other nations. Frank, thank you so much for your phone call. If you want to give us a call with a question or comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 7464 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. Laura, you said you were diagnosed in 2013 that you wanted to share your symptoms with other women because you were totally shocked. You didn't expect that diagnosis at all. So what were your symptoms that sent you to the doctor to begin with? Well, it's funny because a lot of my symptoms are sometimes embarrassing for women to discuss. But I think it's really important that you have a great relationship with your physician. But really, the how mine all started was with irritable bowel syndrome and it continuously got worse. It, it, it kind of, I'll, I'll share with you a little bit. It, it kind of got to the point where it was really hard for me to, you know, go, go out and go eat and, and be out running errands and, and being out during the day. It because got to, the, to be near like the bathroom. The bathroom. I did. I did. I, I, you know, the discomfort, and discomfort the, in my stomach. Mm-hmm. And, and I just felt sick, Michelle. I mean, it, it was just, it, it was very unpleasant. So it, it really got to the point where I'd stopped eating during the day. I would run around with my water and, and, you know, have my fruit in the morning. And what's so funny about that is not taking in as many calories is definitely not healthy for your body, but I was gaining weight at the same time. And I thought, okay, I'm exercising. I'm, I'm doing my spin class. I'm lifting my weights. I'm hardly getting as much food as I want to eat because I do love to eat. And, and I thought to myself, why am I gaining weight? This is so funny. Um, it was literally to the point where, uh, of course, I, I, like I said, I'm mother of three. I thought, well, maybe I'm pregnant again. My little tummy's getting so large. It was the bloating, you know, and that's another symptom of, a, of ovarian cancer is bloating. So um, once those symptoms continue to progress and continually get worse, that's when I started seeing a, a doctor. Dr. Haygood, why does someone's stomach bloat with ovarian cancer? 
Yeah. So, and what Lori described is very similar to what a lot of patients will feel. Um, this abdominal bloating is usually caused um, either by ascites, which is sort of a fluid that the cancer can produce and grows in your abdomen. And as it gets bigger, then your stomach gets bigger. Or you can have what's called an omental mass or an omental cake. And that's where the tumor actually gets into this fatty pad that lays over the intestines. Um, and sometimes patients can feel that tumor up in the top of their abdomen. You'll feel sort of a firmness across the top of the abdomen. Why is it called a cake? It seems totally like, wrong. I thought not to be confused for those of, for those people who do like baked goods, yes. such as myself, not to be confused with that kind of cake. Totally different cake. Very different cake. Yes. But yes. it is called a cake because it sort of mushes together it, yeah. all across the top of the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Lori, are you still taking chemo? Do you go through rounds of chemotherapy? Well, it's interesting. I went through the the frontline chemotherapy, the basic chemotherapy that you get through for ovarian cancer. And right now I am in an immunotherapy trial. And it's it's really interesting. I'm learning all kinds of new things about immunotherapy. It's the hot topic these days. So I I do still have ovarian cancer cells in my body that that we're We'd love to get rid of those. However, we are trying a new immunotherapy trial right now. And so the immunotherapy, as opposed to when we talk about chemo, that's the utilization of of drugs that actually attack um, your, the, the cells that are cancerous. And the downside of chemo is that chemo is not smart, so it can't figure out which are the bad cells and which are the good cells. So you kill bad cells, but you also hurt kill some good cells too. And that's kind of why there are so many side effects of chemotherapy that affect patients is because some of those good cells are under attack too. And this immunotherapy gives another opportunity to be a little bit more specific. Um, and it works more through, um, I'm trying to think a good way to, to tell the listening audience, it's probably more like if you think about how when we're exposed to a virus and our bodies can tell self from non-self. And so it's by using these little markers that may be on the cells of the tumor or the cells of the cancer that actually, if you can target those particular cells, then hopefully you have a lot less of those negative effects like you do when you're just given blasting the body, the whole body with chemotherapy, you can give it something that's a little bit more specific. Sort of a selected poison. Yeah, because she's here. She's got to look, everybody. I know you guys can't see it. Maybe if you. So we're going to tweet out a picture so you can see. She's got a beautiful full head of hair. Um, She 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 looks fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. She's quite beautiful. She would not be the person if you had to pick her out. On the street, she would not be the person that you would yeah. point to you and say, say, this person you have has cancer. cancer. Absolutely. Because there is nothing ill appearing about her at all. And I think that that really illustrates a very good point, that you can look really good even on on the outside and still have some things going on. But if you have this persistent change in what is your norm, that it's right. definitely, if it doesn't go away, don't just blow it off. Don't just say, well, I'm I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting around. My belly's just getting bigger. Um, and actually go and, and have it checked out. I we, think early detection is the key, and these symptoms are hard to, yes, to pin down early on. Yes. Now, we do need to take a break, but before we do, I want to ask you, Dr. Haygood, if you're one of only four 
gynecologists, oncologists in this state, how many patients do you have? How many women are oh. you seeing alone with who have ovarian cancer? Just two. <laughs> okay. She I have about a lot. 12 patients right now, um, just because my practice is new. But, um, you know, Dr. Segoe is, um, has been there for 14 years, and he had 72 patients in clinic. Of those, probably about a third or a half have ovarian cancer. Do any of your other patients, are they on the immuno, immuno how do you say that? Immunotherapy. Yeah, yeah. 10 times fast. <laughs> yes. Immunotherapy. I don't, I don't have any patients on the immunotherapy trial do you have is there anybody else who's in the practice do you know not that i'm aware of so um, you may be the real guinea pig in this huh i you know and it's funny because i actually am the guinea pig <laughs> in this it's it's really interesting when you go through a trial it's it's it you you learn a lot and you definitely get pricked a lot with needles and, and lots of testing about you too. <laughs> lots of blood tests. Right, we yes. need to take a break <laughs> if you want to give us a call please do it one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or send us an email to women at mpbonline.org we'll be right back have a big decision to make on November 8th. A date which will live Ask not need in, in watch your Mr. Gorbachev. We will keep this promise this to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. For young people and gangs, disputes that start in the streets spill over to social media. I got involved in this work because young people were dying based on what they say online. Desmond Patton sees a chance for intervention. Social media gives us an opportunity to really dig deeper into these experiences. Using social media to stop the violence later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
And welcome back to Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens. We are talking about ovarian cancer today with Lori Newcomb, who has ovarian cancer and is open about it and very forthcoming and I think very helpful to our listeners who have questions about it. And of course, our expert is Dr. Christy Haygood. She is uh, a GYN oncologist, one of only four in the entire state. That's really something. I'm going to say that over and over again because it just blows my mind. Um, Dr. Owens, you wanted to ask her a question specifically. Yeah, I I think it would be helpful if you could just explain a little bit. We were talking about treatment or started to talk a little bit about the treatment um, that Lori was going through. And I wanted to ask you specifically. Some people might say, well, heck, if she's got cancer, she didn't mention surgery. So, I mean, are are ovaries still in there? Why, if and if they are, then why don't you just why don't you just take them out? I mean, most people think, well, if you got cancer in you, then one of the easiest ways to get rid of it would be just to do surgery. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that that is oftentimes the mainstay of or the main start for ovarian cancer treatment. So a lot of times we will start with surgery, although some people do start with chemotherapy, and that kind of depends on. Um, how much tumor is there um, and where it's located. Ovarian cancer can be very tricky because the ovaries sit way down in the pelvis. If you think about the pelvis like a bowl, they sit down there in the bottom of that bowl and they sort of get tossed around inside the abdomen. And unfortunately, when they have cancer on them, that means that the tumor cells go all around the abdomen too. Um, And so when we can do surgery, there are so many things that we can take out, but there are a lot of things that we can't take out. Um, So in order to to survive. Um, so if you had tumor, say all on your, on your small bowels or on your small intestines, we couldn't take all of that out. So, um, a lot of times what we're able to do is take out the ovaries and the omentum, maybe some lymph nodes that could potentially have cancer cells in them, um, and then treat the rest with chemotherapy. What about radiation? So radiation is used for a lot of other cancers and in our field for things like cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, but often where the cancer is located for ovarian cancer, like I said, it kind of gets shook up inside the abdomen. Um, You can't radiate the entire abdomen without having pretty serious consequences. Um, And so we don't use radiation. Also, it's it's not um, as radiosensitive as some of the other um, cancers are. So think about it. Your pelvis is a salad bowl. You got the parts of the salad. We're going with the Nukes theme here. We got parts like of the that. salad <laughs> that are sitting in the bowl. And then say, for example, that cancer is salad dressing. And so then you've tossed the stuff with the dressing on it. And then you got to, I mean, how can you cut that out? You can't pick out the ones that have dressing because there's a little dressing everywhere, right? That's a good analogy. That really is. I totally get that. Best way to describe that. Yeah, and so that's kind of why it makes ovarian cancer um, a lot different because it's not really what we call localizer. It it doesn't behave well. It doesn't just stick in one small place because most people are thinking of the ovaries as these little bitty small things that are sitting in your body and compared to many of our other organs are relatively small. But this cancer causes a lot of problems. It really gives people the dickens. If your ovaries are in a salad, how big are they? Are they radishes? Are they? We usually say a walnut size. Oh. So they're a little bit bigger when you're younger and you need them to function. And as you get older, they get smaller, even down to an acorn or so when you're postmenopausal. I was thinking like a cherry tomato. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely not cucumber. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Lori, I know you spend a lot of time um, 
talking about your symptoms, your experience, what you've gone through, and, and we appreciate that. And we're glad you're here to talk about that. What do women ask you often about that we haven't addressed yet? Well, really, the first question which you asked, were, what were my, what are your symptoms? What were they, Lori? Please share with me your symptoms. And I, I always try to be very forthcoming and honest and share my symptoms. The next question is, how are you doing? How is chemo? What is that like? I think that chemotherapy is really scary for a lot of people going through cancer. Um, you know, I'm sitting here with you guys. I have my hair. It's grown back in, and I, I'm really healthy. But initially, you know, I went through a very major surgery and I went straight into chemotherapy. I lost all of my hair for women out there. The one positive was I did not have to shave my legs, ladies. That was very nice. <laughs> um, no, but, but, you know, there were there were a lot of really scary side effects. And what I found is for my friends that are newly diagnosed with cancer, they're scared. They're the unknown. It's the unknown. Those are the questions I get a lot. When you found out about your diagnosis, so how long did it take from the time that you started feeling the bloating and having issues with your stomach and and the, the GI issues? How long from the time that you can remember really thinking, okay, something's going on or something's different to the time you were diagnosed? And then when they finally told you what it was and they told you about the symptoms, did you go, Oh, so that was it. Yeah, that's really funny you said that because I traced my steps back months. And what I what I saw was about six to eight months, I saw a change, a slight change, but not enough to really throw red flags up in the air. But about four months prior to my actual diagnosis, which was in February of 2013, that's when I really traced it back. And I thought, this is when my body really started trying to tell me something was wrong. And two months prior to my diagnosis, I was extremely ill. But that two months hit right around Christmas, right around the holiday. And so I was full force into children and family Mm -hmm. and, and getting through all of that fun holiday. After holidays, I took a deep breath and I said, you know what, there really is something wrong. Thank goodness every year, which is so important, I think, for women to have your yearly annual exam with your gynecologist. And my birthday's in February, and I always give myself that for my birthday. And so that's <laughs> what I did. And that's how I was diagnosed was I had gone to my gynecologist, my OBGYN. And he told me on my appointment was on a Friday, and he told me on a Friday what he was afraid was wrong and ran all the tests, the necessary blood work and, and scans, and then called me on Monday morning. And so that, that's kind of how it oh all played gosh. out. And because speaking of symptoms, we're going we're gonna to go to the phone because Sarah is calling in. Uh, you have a question or a comment about your sister? Uh, yes, um, she's um, 48. She's 10 years younger than me, and she is in a lot of pain. She has a lot of bloating. Um, she stays with my mom. And she takes my mom's 89, and she takes care of her. She has no income coming on in whatsoever. I try to help her out, you know, what I can with with my job and everything. But um, I've talked to her several times about, you know, let's go to the doctor. Let's get you set up and have a hysterectomy. She thinks it's the change of life. And my mom says that. But for her to be in such pain all the time, it's something is not right. And for the, like, around the right below and it's not it's not 
like obesity or anything like that because she, I'm a, probably 150 and she's probably 130. But her stomach is like really bloated and she's always in pain. She has no income, no health insurance, and where? what can I do and where can I take her to help her? Sarah, I can tell that this is something that is really um, emotional and difficult for you. And it sounds like you probably are a little bit more afraid than even your sister may be, or she may be more afraid than you and is a little reluctant to hear if it's something worse than what she thinks it is. Um, but we want to help you. So, Dr. Hager, what what options are available? First of all, what I will tell you is just be persistent. Don't just constantly be the voice in her ear, the concerning, supportive voice that says, you know, if you're in because menopause shouldn't hurt. Um, So the change of life shouldn't hurt. And for her to know that it hurts you to see her in pain. And the other thing is that caregivers a lot of times will put themselves aside Mm -hmm. for the people that they're caring for. And it may be more important to her or she may feel a little guilty for being concerned about her own health while she has to care for your mom. She may feel like the whole world will fall apart if she takes that hour or two to go see a doctor and figure it out. She may be worried about the financial limitations. There are all kinds of things. I think just support her, acknowledge that those concerns are valid, but that it's much more important for her to be healthy so that she can be the best her for everybody else around her and just, you know, just speak that to her in love. And I'm going to let Dr. Haygood talk about some of the options for people who might be struggling with resources or who feel like that is for whom the financial piece may be a a barrier to care. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, you're You're welcome. welcome. We're, you know, we're happy to be here to help you. Um, And it, like Dr. Owen said, it certainly sounds like, um, your sister is very concerned um, about your mom, and as she's a primary caregiver, not met, maybe not taking the best care of herself. Um, I think it's very important for you to be the person that voices those concerns and continues to be persistent about getting her into help. Um, With respect to, so for people who, say for example, there's a person who has listened to this broadcast today and they feel like that sounds just like me. And then that, but they realize that they don't have two hundred dollars or a hundred, however much it is, to to go to see someone. What's are are there processes available? Do that would a doctor's office be willing to work with a patient if they don't have the resources? They could definitely call the office and find out how much an initial visit would be. Um, would it be better for them to start with a primary care physician or to visit a OBGYN and not just an oncologist? Do they need a referral if they're going to see an oncologist? That might be helpful, at least to her, as she's trying to figure out how to best help her sister. And if her sister finally says yes, then where do they go? What do they do? Yeah, I think um, so. There are always different financial resources available, um, and whether there it's a charity care through a hospital or whether we have um, a payment plan set up, we're always willing to do that. Um, you know, the emergency room would be a place to go if you were urgently hurting and had acute severe pain. Um, 
but a primary care doctor is probably the best place to start um, just because we don't know that the symptoms are related to ovarian cancer, but it certainly sounds like something that she needs to get checked out. I think also an OBGYN is very well equipped to evaluate abdominal pain, particularly if if we're thinking it's related um, to the uterus or ovaries. Sarah, I hope that's helpful to you. And and, um, we certainly can recognize how much your sister means to you and how you how concerned you are for her. Yeah, good luck to to you and to her and I hope that you are able to convince her to get it checked out and I'm also hopeful that you'll get a good report and she'll get resolution of whatever it is that um that is troubling her. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. You're Thank welcome. You. We do need to take our last break of the hour. You have a short window to call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. I don't think short windows the right expression. <laughs> you have a short amount of time. How's that? We'll be right back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Americans have a big decision to make on November 8th. A date which will live not in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev. We will keep this promise to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. It's high school football time, and that means it's time for Friday night under the lights. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tonight at 10 o'clock right here on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to women at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. We're back on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown. We're talking about ovarian cancer today, and we have a lot to get through in our remaining minutes. First, an email. I had a hysterectomy in 1981 at age 33. I don't know if I had my ovaries removed, although I was told I had a total hysterectomy. How do I find out if I still have my ovaries? Well, I guess the easiest way to know is if you were 33 when you underwent your surgery, um, if you went into menopause and started experiencing the menopausal symptoms, the hot flashes and difficulty sleeping and like some of the emotional ability and also um, the vaginal dryness, um, then those symptoms come on pretty rapidly. 
um, because it's a surgical menopause. So you remove the source of your hormones that actually keep you from feeling all those things. Um, so if that happened immediately following your surgery, then I would suggest that they took your ovaries out. Another way that you can find out is you can um, sometimes just request the copy of the report because whenever physicians do surgery, they dictate a report that outlines exactly what was done. So um, by accessing the records from that procedure, you can also find out whether or not this was 35 years ago. They're probably on microfilm somewhere. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to do some digging in order to find them, but they can still they can still find them. You know, I mean, we're like, going to the library and cranking up that Absolutely. thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, we have one last phone call before we share some other information. Lisa Lee's calling in from Stone County. Go ahead, Lisa Lee. Um, yes, I just wanted to say for the caller that called in before about resourcing the money for getting um, a pap smear, if you go to the local uh, health department, they will give you a pap smear completely for free. Awesome, Lisa. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so um, we had talked about that during the break, too, that the health department offers some options for um, free screening. Keep in mind, though, that if it's um, if you're talking about screening for ovarian cancer, the pap smear is actually screening for cervical cancer. And so today, oh. which is is still important. No, that, and, it, and it's good because I'm sure that there are people who are out there listening who also need that, too. Um, there's the OBGYN plug, but there are people out there who need that too and who might also need a pap smear and haven't been screened for cervical cancer. Um, however, you can have a normal pap smear and you can still have ovarian cancer. So do not believe that the, the pap smear, because your pap smear is normal, that that in any way alters your, your risk for, or the likelihood that your symptoms could be due to ovarian cancer because they are two different things. Well, that's okay. That's good to know. Well, you called and shared some very valuable information, and we're glad that you were able to learn something, too. A little information for all of us. Thank you, Lisa Lee. Our um, producer in there, our (laughs) guest gynecologist, said, if you want to find some ovaries, can't you just do an X-ray? Will an X-ray show ovaries? No, an X-ray usually does not show your ovaries. Um, The imaging that we would use would usually be either a CAT scan or a transvaginal ultrasound to look for ovaries. And just one quick comment on that um, about the health department may also be a good place to start for those patients who don't have care, who don't have um, other access to care, um, as well as your pap smear. If you're explaining your symptoms, that should trigger to a nurse practitioner or other health provider to get you in somewhere who can help you. Yeah. Lori, I wanted to give you a minute to talk about your event coming up. Uh, for ovarian cancer. Absolutely. We have a fun spin event coming up at the end of this month because of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month is September. And it is on Thursday, September the 29th. It's at the club at the township. And Nukes Cares is partnering with St. Dominic's. And we're we're having an event. And that's in Ridgeland, right? Pardon me? Is that in Ridgeland? It is in Ridgeland. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right by the township, um, the um, the Renaissance shopping area, right in that area. And it's called Ovarian Cycle. It's a little play on words, but it's a stationary spin cycle event. And it's from nine to two. Um, Ovarian cancer survivors actually ride free and we'll have all kinds of great information, education and literature that day. It's a $50 registration with lunch is provided from Nukes Eatery, um, breakfast. 
breakfast, t-shirt, lots of lots of fun goodie goodie bags. Yeah. yeah. So for people who are really interested in cancer awareness, you got a lot of opportunities to do things that are healthy. Because spin is yes. awesome. I love that. And when you mentioned you were spinning regularly, I thought that was really great yes. um, that you're doing this. And um, UMC also has their annual run for the Ribbons 5K that is happening September 10th. That would be tomorrow. So yes. for those of you, Good. online registration is closed. Start now. Yeah. <laughs> online registration is closed, but you will at least have an opportunity to participate. And this is for um, raising awareness for all GYN cancers. So that's like everything that Dr. Haygood takes care of. Um, <laughs> and not just ovarian, but ovarian, of course, is included there as well. All right. We only have like a 35 seconds, Dr. Haygood. Can you sum it all up? What should what should women be most um most uh, can't think of the word. You now have ten seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I can't think of the quick, word. If you're having symptoms like Doctor uh, like, yeah, um, Lori describes, <laughs> such as abdominal pain, things that are consistent and persistent, we want you to see a physician. And whether that's through your health department or through your primary care provider, whether your internal medicine, your um, OBGYN, please go in to be seen and explain your symptoms, even if they're embarrassing. So abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, fullness, not being able to eat, and oh, my tummy's getting bigger. Please tell your doctor about that. that yeah, and for great. Sarah, <laughs> if you have a stubborn family member, just keep chipping away because it's really important that they have somebody who's encouraging them to make good choices for their own health. Dr. Christy Haygood, thank you for coming in. Lori Newcomb, thank you so much for coming in. Dr. Owens, always good to see you. Thanks for having us. Southern Remedy for Women is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. It's funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener just walked in the door. It's his first day as an intern. His name is Don Barr. I'm sure you'll hear that name again. For Dr. Michelle Owens, I'm Karen Brown. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women. And stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair.